Maybe you've noticed as you've been attending, we've been in two different series, one in the book of Genesis taught by Alex. Uh, I've been systematically teaching through the book of Mark. And the reason we do that is uh, very intentional, is we desire to want to teach the whole counsel of God, Old Testament, New Testament, uh, but also all the many genres in the scriptures. And so we are very specific uh, to be wanting to, one, uh, we have you in a gospel, and we also have you in the beginnings, foundational theology. This morning, we're going to be looking at verses 32 to 52. And if you are just joining us in, uh, this, uh, this week or, or a recent attender, we began the book of Mark uh, about a year ago. We've been working through at different times. And as we've approached beginning of Mark chapter 11, Mark 11 through 16, the rest of the, uh, the book, it's really focusing in on the last week of Jesus' earthly life. Mark as a whole is a book of Jesus' life, his teaching and ministry, and we've been specifically looking at Jesus' last week, the events surrounding his death, specifically in Jerusalem, and looking at the fact that Jesus has been predicting to his disciples along the way and along their journey that he is going to be turned over, be betrayed, suffer at the hands of the Jewish leaders, and die. We're picking up with that account this morning. When we left off last, we were in the middle of a dinner, the Passover meal. Jesus had just celebrated the Passover. And we pick up exactly at that point where they have just eaten the Passover. Look with me, beginning at verse 32. Let's read God's word together. And they went to a place called Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, sit here while I pray. And he took with him Peter and James and John and began to be greatly distressed and troubled. And he said to them, my soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch. And going a little further, he fell on the ground and he prayed that if it were possible... The hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. And he came and found them sleeping. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? Could you not watch for one hour? Watch and pray that ye may not enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. And again he went and prayed, saying the same words. And he came again and he found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy, and they did not know how to answer him. And he came a third time, and he said to them, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. And immediately while he was speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him. 
and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and they seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and he struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day, I was with you in the temple teaching and you did not seize me. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him. But he left the linen cloth and he ran away naked. Let's pray. Father, we now come to your word. And we ask that you would work in our hearts and our minds to receive it this morning. God, we pray that not only would we understand your word, but we would understand how individually we are to respond, how we are to obey. We know that you do not give your word so that we might know about you only. You give us your word so that we might be changed by it. And so that our knowledge would lean, it would lead to obedience. We pray that now as we enter into your word, you would guide my words. And would you would guide and encourage these hearts. Amen. It was just about 10 years ago, I think, really about this time of year. When we had transitioned to Germany. We had actually just moved into our first place. It took forever to try to get our bank accounts, to try to get everything resolved, to try to finally move in. When I received devastating news one morning when I went to work, the organization that I was working with was out of funding. And they let us know that from that day forward, they would begin to let go of some of our staff but they just hadn't determined which ones yet. I remember from that day, trying to go back to normal work was impossible. I remember staring at the computer, wondering, we just got here. We left the U.S., we raised support, we talked with churches, we did everything we could to share about our vision for working in Germany, only to land, and within a few months, be told, very likely, we might be packing up and going home. I remember, I don't know if it was that night or if it was kind of more towards that weekend. I don't know what day we received the news. But I remember being on the floor of the kids. We had like a, a blanket. Ezra and Salem were about three, uh, three and a half. I think Salem was probably maybe nine months old at that, at that point in time. But I remember I had zero desire to do anything. No desire to cook, no desire to eat. You have two kids to take care of, and we laid out a blanket on the floor, put out some games. I think we had Yahtzee, we had some other things. It was all I could do, but literally my will was gone. You finish work, you go through the motions, you come home, I'm with my wife, kids are playing around, put a blanket out, lay on the floor with them. I remember watching Winnie the Pooh. Because I, I, I literally, I just wanted, in a sense, 
to act like things weren't happening and to be a kid. To go back to maybe to my younger days where you watched those cartoons, you watched those movies, uh, and you were, in a sense, at peace. There was, n- there was nothing in your world that really shook your world. That weekend, I made a decision that I would go to my boss, wanting to try to have some control over the situation, to let him know, if you're not sure who you're firing, let me just put my hand up, send us home. We just got here. I would rather go home and start over than to continue on with with an organization that is basically closing its doors. Unfortunately, my boss didn't take me up on that offer. In fact, he gave me no news. He didn't tell me one way or the other. Those weeks and those months after that conversation were so difficult. And I wonder if you have been in a position like myself, where you have been in a moment where life overwhelms you, where what's comfortable or stress-free or pain-free is not the journey and it's not the season and it's not the moment that you're in. Those moments where your soul is in absolute turmoil. And if you've been in a moment like that, and I'm pretty sure you have, the question that we have to ask is how do we respond to God in moments like this? When we don't have certainty, when we are already hurting, when the scriptures in front of us this morning, we find Jesus in the garden of Gethsemane wrestling with a moment just like that. And far from being above human emotions, we often recognize that Jesus is divine, but Jesus is not above human emotions. In fact, this passage makes clear that Jesus had every human emotion as he approached his death and the cross. The title for the sermon this morning is The Heart of the Son and the Will of the Father. As I was reading and studying for this, I came across that phrase and it struck me that I I can't think of a more simple phrase that really gets at the heart of this passage than this wrestling that Jesus was doing, the heart of the Son and the will of the Father. Because I know I have lived and I'm sure that you have lived as a son of God or a daughter of God, those moments where your heart and God's will are wrestling with one another. And as we come to this text, one thing I can share with you absolutely is that God will bring you into that garden. God spares no one those Garden of Gethsemane moments. All of us have them. And in the text this morning, what I want to suggest is that Jesus provides us with the model. I'm choosing my words very carefully. Not a model. Jesus is providing us with the, capital T, capital H, capital E, the model for how we deal with life's most painful moments and difficult decisions. 
how we approach God in the middle of our suffering. The simple outline for this morning, notice we read verses 32 to 52. We are taking the scriptures, we took this story as a block. Uh, But I want to let you know, uh, our focus this morning will be on 32 to 42. There's about 10 verses that I really want to focus in more deeply on, and that is Jesus in the garden and Jesus talking with his disciples. And so we want to look at three things. We want to look at how Jesus models how to pray. I might say in quotations, it's probably not behind you, but in the midst of suffering. If you think about it, this is a key difference. Jesus has given his disciples a model of praying, the Lord's Prayer. But the Lord's Prayer is in many ways the the general prayer that we pray that guides and directs our life. What's unique about this specific prayer is that Jesus is, is praying this in the midst of suffering. So I want to look at how Jesus models prayer. Secondly, I want to take a look at an important principle that Jesus teaches his disciples about prayer in verses 37 to 42. And I want to close with verse 42. I want to take a look at the result of Jesus' prayer. What happened after the garden? It's really important to just focus on that. What happened after the garden? There's a beautiful image there that I want us to see of how Jesus responds. So let's begin this morning. I want to move straight into that first passage, verses 32 to 36. I want to take a look at how Jesus models how to pray in the midst of suffering. Now, two points I'm going to make, uh, but I'm just going to mention in passing when we take take a look at Jesus' model to pray. And the first is this, that Jesus prioritizes time to pray. Notice it says, and they went to a place called Gethsemane. We're probably so familiar with the term Gethsemane that we, we don't process actually what Gethsemane was. Gethsemane uh, is at the foot of the Mount of Olives. We know that Gethsemane is, uh, the the name actually means, it means uh, oil press or or wine press. It's a grove of olive trees. And specifically, it's within the city limits of Jerusalem. Remember when we uh, talked about the Passover, how the Passover must be celebrated in the city limits of Jerusalem? What's unique about the Garden of Gethsemane uh, is that it is within the city limits. Jesus has finished the Passover meal, and he goes and he finds a quiet place. Now, we see from the text that, uh, in fact, Jesus had visited this place many times, so often that when we move uh, fast forward to Judas' betrayal, Judas knows exactly where to find Jesus. He knows that if, he, uh, if Jesus is, was not celebrating the supper and if he wasn't at the house then it's very likely that he would be in his place of prayer. So the first thing I just want to mention in passing that you should see in the text is that when Jesus is facing this most difficult moment of his life, the first thing he does is that he prioritizes getting away to his place in prayer. I can't tell you how important that is. I'll tell you what my reaction was, and you already heard, when we were going through a difficult time. It was lay a blanket on the floor, and my reaction was, in a sense, to try to ignore the situation. I hurt so badly. And what Jesus does is he immediately gets away, and he says, listen, I need to get to my place where I can pray, where there's no distractions, where I can seek out the Father, where I can pray in privacy, and I can pour out my heart. 
The second thing I want you to see that Jesus did is in verse 34, and we're just mentioning these in passing, was, uh, excuse me, verse 33, is that he takes his disciples with him. First, Jesus takes his 12 to Gethsemane. And then you notice very clearly that Jesus takes three and he brings them with him. And Jesus confides in the three in a way that he doesn't with the others. Is that in this moment of need, in this, this moment of, uh, of uh, pain, of suffering, of what he, he calls a distress, like a soul distress. He says, my soul is, is sorrowful even unto death. Is that Jesus takes his three closest friends. And surprisingly, because you think if Jesus was divine, then why does he need to share this with anybody? And it reveals something amazing about Jesus' humanity. And it reveals something about you and me. Is that in the middle of life's difficult moments, we are not cut out to carry that burden ourselves. Jesus takes three and he tells them exactly how his heart is feeling. Jesus got away to a place that he could pray. Jesus takes his closest friends and he shares what's going on. But really where I want to focus in is Jesus' prayer. This is where we're going to do significant study this morning because Jesus now is going to model a prayer that is going to submit to the will of the Father. What I want to do with these next moments is really dive in to the words of Jesus' prayer. As we read Jesus' prayer, the first thing that we see is Abba, Father. Jesus' prayer here is unique in, in Mark. I don't know if you are familiar with the Gospels, but this is the only time in all of the Gospels that this word Abba is ever used. That's very familiar to us because if we know the story of, of Jesus and we know that he prayed Abba Father, but maybe you didn't realize how rare this word actually is in the Scriptures. This is the only time Matthew, John, or Luke do not include this word that Mark does. This word, Abba, is only actually used two other times in all of the New Testament. Paul uses this word, Abba, in Romans 8.15 and Galatians 4.16. Extremely rare word. But this is Jesus' first word of his prayer. Abba, Father. You know when you, uh, I, I referred to this earlier, but you know when we learned the Lord's Prayer, whether it was from Matthew or whether it was from Luke, right? Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Uh, the first word to that prayer, do you know what it is? We use the word Father, but it's not Abba. We trans, it's the Greek word pater, which we, we use for Father. But in that Lord's Prayer, it doesn't have the word Abba. So when Jesus taught his disciples to pray, he never used this word. This word is not recorded in any other, other gospels apart from this one moment. And it should cause us to ask, well, what is this word? Why does Jesus pray this way? What is the significance? Well, Abba is obviously not an English word and it's not a Greek word. It comes from the Aramaic. It should stand out because most words we translate. When we think about uh, translating from either the Hebrew or the Greek or the Aramaic, 
when we have a translation in front of us, they take the original text and they translate it into whether it's English or Spanish or German. But this one word is not translated. It's simply carried over from the Aramaic. Abba is Abba. Do you know why? It's because the Jews in that day considered this word so intimate that they would not use it in praying to God because they thought it was disrespectful. They had set it apart. When you think about it, I don't know. I was just thinking in my own English terms, but I was thinking, what are the words we have for this role? Father, dad. And I remember when my kids were young and still Salem sometimes calls me this, daddy. It's only three words. Maybe you know another word that I don't. I was just thinking, how would we translate it? Father, dad, daddy. If you think of father, father is more informal, but it also shows respect. Uh, in fact, we have a word that we, we, uh, I was told to never use, and we, it was called my old man. I never referred to my father as my old man. Uh, different families are different. You might hear this, but I know in my family, for my family, that was a sign of disrespect to my father. So I never called my dad my old man. I didn't call him to his face, and I didn't say that about my friends. But it just shows you... now. For other people, that might be different. You might hear that in songs or you might hear that differently in families. But what it does show you that we at least assign a different level of intimacy to different words for father. And when Jesus prays Abba, it should arrest our attention because he uses a word that is so different. The word for uh, the normal word, pater in the Greek, I don't know what the normal Aramaic would be, but Jesus says Abba. And this makes clear that Jesus, in this time of hurt, addresses God with intimacy, with a love from from a father to a son, that if a Jew would hear this, they would think it was disrespectful that Jesus was this intimate with the father. That Jesus would use a term that it may be a child, you know, like my daughter Salem will still call me daddy, as I mentioned. Why does she do that? It's a term. I'm nobody else's daddy. I'm Salem's daddy. It's, it's a term that she uses, and especially the young use of their parents. It's a term of endearment. They say that in love. And as a father, I hear it in love. I hear of a young child. When my child grows up, it might not be daddy anymore. I know it's not with Ezra already. But I say that just to invite you to look at the relationship that Jesus is is. Uh, drawing upon as he prays in his most difficult time. First he says Abba, and then he says Father. And by the way, he says both. So Father isn't just kind of in quotations. We think he's saying Father. Jesus says Abba, and then he uses the word for Father. He uses the term of endearment, and then he uses the term in a sense of respect and honor. And Jesus calls him both. I can't walk away from looking at Abba Father without recognizing that Jesus sees his father as a loving father who deeply cares for him, who he can pray in the most intimate terms with. And if we don't see that as the starting point for how Jesus addresses God, then we miss the significance that in this time, 
where Jesus, we would say his heart is breaking. Where he says his soul is sorrowful to, to death. That in that time, Jesus uses a term that is so intimate. Expressing not only does he love the father, but he's confident of the father's love for him. A love like a father for a young child. And this is where Jesus' prayer begins. And this is where our prayers for the father when we are dealing with the circumstances and with the moments in life that overwhelm us, we don't come to God simply as the God who sits in heaven, who controls all things. We come to him as a father. And this is something that's so unique to Jesus' theology. This, and so to Paul's theology, this adoption theology, that we weren't just saved from our sin, that we were adopted as sons and daughters. And folks, that is a truly special privilege that we have become the very sons and daughters of God. And that we can address him like Jesus did. I won't get into all the debate of how we want to translate it. I will say, if Jesus said, Abba, Father, we can say, Abba, Father, in our times of distress. The second phrase that Jesus uses is, all things are possible for you. And when Jesus prays this, he's he's reminding himself of what is true about God. Notice how short, how simple Jesus' prayer is. Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. So this phrase directly points to two of God's attributes, his sovereignty and his omnipotence. Another word for omnipotence is just he's all-powerful. God's sovereignty, let's talk about that for a moment. Why is it important for Jesus first to begin, Abba, Father, and then to remind himself of good theology? Once again, I am amazed as we study this. This is Jesus, divine, but fully man. And the way that he models to pray is he himself reminds himself of who God is. I don't know how many times have you, you have, in a sense, in the middle of life storms, forgotten who God is. I mean, yes, we know, but we don't act like we know. And Jesus immediately grounds himself. God's sovereignty, what does it mean? God created all things, and he actively rules over all things. God created all things, he actively rules over all things. There's not a centimeter of this entire universe that God did not create and that God does not rule over right here and right now. God's omnipotence, it means that God is all-powerful. That what Jesus says is all things are possible for you. So if God is all-powerful, then he has the strength, he has the ability to accomplish whatever his will is. This is the outcome of being all-powerful. If God wills it, he can accomplish it. There is nothing. So if, if God is sovereign, he created all things, he rules over all things. And because God is all-powerful, whatever his will is in all of the world, it gets accomplished because there is nothing that God cannot do. And that's kind of the opposite. If you think about it, what is the opposite of things saying all things are possible for you? What Jesus is saying is nothing is impossible for you. All things are possible, meaning nothing is impossible. And if God is sovereign, all things are under his rule, and God has the power to carry out his will on earth, 
Uh, the Old Testament often uses a phrase that maybe you're familiar with. It says, like, nothing could hold back his hand or his arm. We see that many times in the Psalms. We see that in the Old Testament. What is that referring to? It's referring to the fact that God is all-powerful. If God has willed it, there is nothing on earth that can hold back his hand. Why is it important that Jesus prays this? Because if God is not sovereign and God is not in control, there's a chance that Jesus' suffering, our suffering, our circumstances are outside of his will or beyond his power to control. And if that's the case, then praying to God will make no difference at all. In a sense, it's just a place of comfort. If, if God is not all sovereign, if God is not all powerful, then that means that the circumstances that are taking place in, in our life may either be out of his sovereignty, God can't control, or it is in his control, but he's not powerful enough to actually deal with it. And Jesus confirms right away in his prayer that neither of those are true by saying one thing, all things are possible for you. What does that mean? You have to have an all-sovereign God. You have to have an all-powerful or omnipotent God. So Jesus reminds himself right at the beginning of his prayer of the good theology that he needs to remind himself despite the storm that is taking place in his soul. The next phrase is, remove this cup from me. Jesus pours out his heart and he places his request in front of the Father. It's interesting to ask this question, or to ask this, why did Jesus ask this? Do you, don't you know the, the verse that says, who for the joy set before him endured the cross? Is everybody familiar with that one? Where's that verse right now? Where's that joy? Because this says, remove this cup from me. Which leads us to ask the question, how are both true? How did Jesus endure the cross for the joy set before him and at the same time pray, remove this cup from me? Well, let's ask that question. Why was Jesus overwhelmed by the prospect of death? Because one thing's true. It had been on the entire journey of his disciples that Jesus had already been telling them that I will be delivered over to the hands of the Jewish leaders, that I will be beaten, that I will be killed, that I will be buried, that I will rise again. So it's not as if Jesus didn't see this coming. It's not as if he was surprised. Has, has anything devastated you because it was such a surprise, completely caught off guard? Well, that could be part of it, but it's not true with Jesus. He wasn't caught off guard. He'd been telling his disciples that he is going to be crucified. So what is it? The answer could only be that Jesus is facing something bigger than his death. Jesus is not just facing a death on the cross. Jesus is going to the cross to be a ransom for many. Jesus is going to the cross to take on the sins of the world. Jesus' body is going to be broken so that ours might be healed. On the cross, when Jesus takes our sin, the Father is literally going to turn his back and cause Jesus to cry out, Father, why have you abandoned me? 
And so the reason that Jesus asked this cup to be removed is, is because it's perfectly normal and natural not to endure pain. It's perfectly normal and natural if your child is dying of cancer than to pray and ask God to save his life. It's perfectly normal and natural as a parent. We, when we were driving this morning, I was telling the kids, I, I had saw uh, yesterday morning, I saw a terrible car accident where it looked as if the person uh, would have uh, died because there was no room in that, that front. It, the, the front side was completely caved in. And little Sal, the first thing she thought, we were driving to church, she said, let's pray for that family. The, this idea of death is not natural. And Jesus expresses that. And he says, Father, take this cup from me. And this is exactly where we get our sermon title because we see so clearly when Jesus says, Father, remove that cup, remove this cup, the heart of the Son and the will of the Father are not the same. That almost seems like it's heretical to say, but it's true. The heart of the Son and the will of the Father, at this moment in Gethsemane, Jesus is wrestling with his human emotions that, that shrink back from death, shrink back from knowing sin, shrink back from abandonment of the Father, and ask him to remove this cup. Two points about Jesus' request, maybe just to highlight two things of theology that I don't want you to miss, but I can't dwell on these. This verse where Jesus asked for God the Father to remove the cup, it reveals his humanity in a way that is so clear. Do you know if the New Testament wanted to hide the fact that Jesus endured a trial like this? That this is never a story you would write about Jesus if you wanted people to believe in Jesus. The fact that Jesus would be betrayed as in the garden wrestling with the will of the Father. But the New Testament gladly shares this story because Jesus is fully God and fully human. In fact, Hebrews 4, 15 to 16 says this. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one in whom every respect was, listen to this, tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. What gives us that hope in Hebrews? The fact that Jesus was like us in every way. The scriptures say that he was tempted in every respect and yet without sin. Another, the, uh, I would say, theological point just to hit here. This is perhaps one of the greatest arguments for the exclusivity of Jesus Christ as the only way of salvation. Because here you have it. Jesus is praying and wrestling with the Father and says, you're, all, you're sovereign and you have all power. And Jesus puts his request in front of the Father and says, if there is any other way, remove this cup. If there is any other way that you might accomplish your plan of salvation and you might save sinners, Jesus right here prays and says, God, if there's any other way, would you remove this cup? Why is that an argument for exclusivity of, of, of uh, Jesus Christ as the only way, the way, the truth, and life? It's because if God 
being all powerful and all sovereign, refuses to answer that prayer of his son when he could have spared his death, then God is not the good loving God that we have thought he was. God is a cruel and terrible God that allowed his son to undergo judgment that he didn't have to take on if God could save the world through another way. We see Jesus' humanity. We see Jesus' exclusivity. This is why we would say, no, there is no other way. It might be offensive to others, but you have to understand, if there was another way that God could provide for the, the forgiveness of sins apart from Jesus Christ, here it is. Jesus said, God, remove this cup. All things are possible for you. Now we need to see how Jesus ends. Because he ends his prayer, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup, but not my will, but yours be done. Having laid down his request, having poured out his heart, by the way, uh, I didn't fully connect the fact that our catechism and defining prayer as pouring out our hearts would so intimately connect with our passage today, where Jesus is pouring out his heart to the Father. But Jesus moves to the conclusion of his prayer. And he prays that God's will will take precedence over his own. I want to dwell on this. Because when we think about, we say God's will, we mean something very specific in a way that we don't mean about our will. When I say God's will, when Jesus says, God, would your will be done and not my own will, We're not talking about, in a sense, two people who have two different preferences, and the question is, who gets their way? We're not even talking about the fact that of God and man, and whenever uh, God and man differ, well, God gets his way. He's obviously the creator. That's not how this passage is using this term of God's will. How is it using that term? Whenever we talk about God's will, Specifically being fulfilled in the scriptures, it is God's one plan of salvation through his one son, Jesus Christ, for the saving of the entire world. God's will is God's perfect plan of redemption carried out through Jesus Christ by which he not only saves sinners, but he sanctifies us. And then he uses us to share his gospel until he brings his kingdom. That is God's perfect will. And the only one who knows that will is God the Father. So when we talk about God's will, it's not God's preferences versus our preferences. When we say God's will, we mean something very specific. It is the will of the Father that not even the Son knows. It is God's perfect will to carry out his plan of redemption or his plan of salvation through Jesus Christ for the salvation of sinners, for the sanctification of of the saints, to share the gospel to the point where God establishes his kingdom. God the Father is the only one who knows that perfect plan. And what Jesus is praying when he's praying this, this is not preferences. Jesus' preference versus the Father's preference. Jesus is saying, God, I know you have a good and perfect will to bring sinners to yourself, to provide salvation through the world, this plan of redemption that you have been accomplishing since the beginning of the world and will complete And what Jesus is submitting is he's saying, in my humanness, he's fully divine and fully human. But what Jesus is saying is, my human will 
and the emotions that I'm experiencing. I'm submitting to your perfect will and your plan of salvation. It's something very specific. Think of the Lord's Prayer, right? Uh, Jesus actually teaches his disciples this, right? Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. What is the very next phrase? Your kingdom come and your will be done. What does Jesus tie together? God is establishing his kingdom, and that's his specific will, and that's what Jesus teaches his disciples to pray. Do you know that in this passage, Jesus does nothing other than apply the prayer that Jesus tells his disciples to pray? Father in heaven, glorified be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus is saying God has planned out the plan of redemption. He's accomplishing that on earth. We see that lived out day by day in the events and circumstances in our life. But what Jesus does is he submits to that will. The classic verse that helps us understand this, this uh, Paul writes this after Jesus' life, but you all know it. It's Romans 8, 28. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for the good, for those who are called according to his purpose. What is God's purpose? After saving us to make us like Christ, after, uh, and while he's making us like Christ, to bring about the kingdom. Let me just point out one thing about Jesus' prayer about not my will be done, but yours. Did you notice that Jesus does not suppress his human emotions, but he submits them to the will of the Father? Jesus does not suppress his desires, he makes them known to the Father. He pours out his heart, he makes known his request, he does not ignore his emotions. He does not ignore his sorrow, but he won't be controlled by his emotions. Jesus knows that he has the freedom to cry out, Abba, Father, and to truly pour out his heart and to actually make his request known. He says, God, if there's another way, please remove this cup. He pours out his emotions but he doesn't allow himself to be dominated and controlled by his emotions. And this is where the beauty of Jesus' willingness to submit his emotions, to submit his desires, to submit his heart to the will of the Father. Why? Because he trusts him as a loving Father, a sovereign God, one who has the power to do all things and who is perfectly bringing about the salvation of sinners and so sanctification of saints in a broken world. I want to quickly highlight, if we look at verses 37 through 41, we're going to be very quick here. If that was Jesus, how Jesus models how to pray... I want to talk about a principle that I see, and then we're going to move quickly to our conclusion. I won't take the time. If you need the notes, I'll be glad to share you the notes with you. But notice a principle that Jesus teaches about prayer. So Jesus is wrestling in prayer himself. But you notice there's this whole story in verses 37 through 41 of Jesus going back and forth between prayer and then going to check on his disciples. And what are they doing? They're sleeping. Prayer. Checking on the disciples. They're sleeping. Prayer. 
came back to the disciples. They were asleep once again. And Jesus responds to them, and I think in a very loving way, not to be, in a sense, snarky or cynical, but he tells them this principle of prayer I want you to see. He commands them to watch and pray. He lets them know that the purpose, the purpose of the command to watch and pray is so that they don't fall into temptation. And then he gets a principle. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Here's what I want you to see. You can expect, expect your flesh to be weak in life's most difficult moments and times. Jesus, Jesus is basically saying, this is your default. Your default is not to be prepared to handle the things that life will bring at you. In fact, Jesus tells him, your flesh is weak, and uh, uh, the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak, and there's only one solution, to pray. To pray. Jesus says, watch and pray. That's why he gives the command. Actually, those are two imperatives. So here's the principle I want you to, to see out of this passage, and then we'll combine it together. We see Jesus model how to approach God in life's most difficult times. We see Jesus teach a really important principle. So while Jesus is agonizing in prayer, in fact, he's invited his three best friends to pray with him, they have fallen asleep. And Jesus says not to rebuke them, but he notes something important. Your flesh is weak. I'll tell you a little story. Desiree's teaching Sunday school. Uh, I'll never live this down probably, but when our son was being born, uh, she had a very long labor. I was in the hospital room, but let me just tell you, I could not stay awake. I tried and tried. Let me just tell you, my flesh, my spirit was willing, my flesh was weak. My mom had to come in and stay and hold Des's hand while I slept. I don't say that to be funny. I don't say that. I say because one of the things, if you think... Wouldn't a husband be excited about the birth of his first son? I was. My flesh was weak. I stayed awake. By the way, it wasn't like two or three hours. We're like 18 hours of labor. My body gave in. Uh, I say that just to say, in life's greatest moments, I promise you the flesh will be weak. And here's Jesus' answer. Pray. Because prayer is the only way that you overcome. Let's just Combine several things. Jesus models how to pray in the midst of suffering. If you're thinking, where's my third point? I'm not going to hit it. You can get my notes. You will face difficulties in life. In those difficulties, your heart may often struggle with the will of the Father. You'll be tempted to be controlled by your emotions. Make decisions at those moments when you are most overwhelmed by your feelings. But Jesus offers us, he models for us a different approach of giving God our emotions, of making known our requests, but ultimately submitting to his will, knowing that he's accomplishing his good plan of redemption. In short, Jesus models how we can be overwhelmed but we can be overcomers through prayer. The spirit is willing, the flesh is weak, but with God's help and through prayer, we can go through life's most difficult moments and we could lay our will at the Lord's feet, the desires of our hearts, and we can pick up the will of the Father, knowing that he will give us the strength to carry on.